Welcome to the One Rental at a Time podcast. This is your host, Michael Zuber. This is the show where we interview guests involved in the real estate business. From experts to newbies, wholesalers, flippers, buy and hold, apartments, commercial, notes, hard money, Airbnb, mobile homes, it doesn't matter. If you're involved in the business, we want to talk to you. This show relies on referrals and recommendations from our listeners. If you know someone we should talk to, please make a recommendation. As the author of One Rental at a Time, The Journey to Financial Freedom, I'm dedicated to helping you take your first or your next step on your real estate journey. But I need your help. We need to spread the message of One Rental at a Time Works. Please share this podcast, my YouTube channel, and of course, my book, all called One Rental at a Time. Thanks, and let's start the show. Hey everyone, thanks for watching. Uh, I have a special guest with us for today. Someone you probably have seen before if you're in the real estate investing space. We have David Green, who is the co-host of the Bigger Pockets podcast. How are you doing this morning, David? Very good, Michael. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Uh, real estate investing is a small world. And as you would expect, two guys in California, we know some of the same people. And uh, we were nice enough to connect us. So shout out to Bo. Thanks, buddy. Got a baby, Bobo. Bo knows real estate. <laughs> There you go. Well, one of the things I wanted to make sure I reached out to you about specifically now is you just wrote a book or is it's just being released uh, on a topic that is very, very uh, common in real estate and that's around Burr. Uh, is, that, uh, is that true? Yeah, absolutely. It came out maybe two months ago or so. It's been really good so far. Excellent. Do you, I think you have a copy. You want to, want to flash it in front uh, the this, camera? This is what it looks like. <laughs> Buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Excellent. That's the one. That's the one you need to go get if you're interested in Burr, you want to get educated on it. Uh, but David, what, let's, uh, let's talk about what inspired that book. I know you've been talking about, I, I've watched a hundred of your interviews on, on Bigger Pockets, but let's talk about you, the investor, you know, outside of Bigger Pockets. What, what you know, caused you to look at Burr and, and, and really jump into that? Well, I, I had aspirations to build a really big rental portfolio. I knew I was going to do it. And so the question just became how? And I was just working crazy overtime as a police officer, like 100 hours a week, sleeping in my car, getting back up to do my next shift because I didn't have time to drive home and sleep. Wow. And I just realized at a certain point, like, this is not sustainable. You can do this for a short period of time, like a sprint, but it was catching up to me. And I hadn't accomplished the goals that I had set for myself for how many properties I wanted to own, where I wanted my net worth to be. And so I realized I had to figure out a better way to do it. And uh, when I looked at my kind of like my spreadsheet with all my properties, I saw that every time I bought a house, I was adding value to the property. I was making it worth more and I was putting a really big down payment down. So I had a ton of equity in all these houses, but that wasn't really any use to me because you can't take the equity out. You can't use it to, to get more property, which is at the point of the buying cycle where you actually make money is when you buy a property that's below market value. And I started catching myself as, because the kind of the, the conventional wisdom at the time was you should have a lot of equity in your properties because you're safer. Yeah. If you have a lot of equity, if the value goes down, then you're okay. And I was really just looking into that and wondering, is that actually true or does it just sound good to say? Because what does it matter if, you're, if your equity on paper goes away in a property? If it was worth 100 and you owe 60, so you've got 40,000 in equity and it drops down to 50,000, does it matter that you're theoretically $10,000 underwater. Cause if you're not going to sell the property, it doesn't matter at all. And 
I'd seen that prices went down in 2010 and everyone lost their equity and then they came right back up again. And now those houses are worth more. And I realized that, you know, equity is not what keeps you safe. What keeps you safe is cash flow, making sure you got money coming in to pay that mortgage and reserves, making sure you've got money set aside in case something breaks in the house. If you've got those two things, it doesn't matter what the actual value of your property is. Excellent. And that's always going to go up and down, right? So the people that, are, that usually hesitate getting started is they're trying to time the market. They're always asking questions like, well, what's going to happen if the market goes down, you know? And I just don't even ask that question anymore. If it's a good deal and it cash flows and it's in a good area, who cares whether the market goes up or down? I'm going to time the market and I'm going to sell when I want to sell. I'm not going to um, do it because the, it, someone's making me do it. The only time that would ever happen would be if I couldn't make that payment. So once I realized that, I was like, okay. Uh, the way that I'm doing it right now feels safe, but it's really not safe. It's actually hurting me because I can't buy as many houses and I'm working these crazy hours. Life's not very fun. So instead I started thinking about, well, maybe I should refinance some of these houses. And I refinanced a couple of them. I had a couple others I did HELOCs on and I realized, well, this, this house just basically paid for itself. I have no money left in the deal. And I just pulled 50 grand out that I went to go buy another house. So house A bought me house B. And I realized that was over like a four or five year period of time. And I just wanted to know how could I do that in less than five years, which ultimately led to this burst strategy where you're doing it in a period of like four to six months instead of five years, but you're doing the exact same thing. You're just starting with that as your end goal and setting up your strategy to work backwards to work that way. Very, very cool. So let's rewind the clock. So you're a police officer sleeping in your car doing the, I don't know what you call it, the, the Gary V hustle and grind Yeah thing, right? You're, you're yep. burning the candle at both ends, literally probably being a little unsafe. I didn't catch what, what time frame is that? Is that like 2008, 9, 10? Or what is that? Yeah, that would have been 2010 through 2015. Okay. So 2010. So pretty good timing, right? 2015 mm -hmm. stuff's probably still going down, right? If you call 2012, the bottom, mm -hmm. uh, this is all in California. No. So at California, we probably turned around right around 2013. Yep. It became really hard to buy properties out here that would cash flow after 2013. And that's because 2010 was kind of our bottom. Yep. And then you had all the people that went through a short sale in 2010 <laughs> that now re-entered the market in 2013 because they yes. could get a loan again. And all of a sudden it was like, man, it went from I'm offering, you know, 20% under list price, which was already low. to yeah. they're selling 20% over list price before I can get an offer. <laughs> and it, it, boom, it happened really fast. I remember. So I had moved on to Arizona and then okay. from there, Florida. Okay, very cool. All right, so let's give a picture of your portfolio when you have this epiphany uh, about going back and, and refining uh, the properties. You had dozens at this point? I probably had, yes, right around 11 or 12. Uh, uh, so a dozen when I was like, man, this is just slow going. I'm buying two houses a year, maybe three, but I'm working all year long crazy hours yeah. to try to save because you got to put a down payment of 30 to 40,000, then you got to rehab budget a... 20 to 30,000 and you're dropping 50 to 60 grand in every house. It takes a long time to save up that money. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And, um, you know, being a police officer, putting yourself at risk, working those hundred hours. Um, first off, thank you. All right. That's that. At least for that. Yeah. That needs, that needs to be respected. So thank you for putting your life on the line every day for us. Uh, but yeah, that's, um, you can't do that forever. It has to be a sprint, right? That's you, mm -hmm. you do that as a marathon. It probably doesn't end well. Um, yes. For anyone, right. Not, not just yourself. All right. So now you go back and you go, okay, you go back to a bank, you just do a commercial, go back. So this is 2013. So you go to a, just like a bank of America or who do you go get that first refi from? It's probably around 2000. Yeah. Around 2013. What I figured was that credit unions would let me take HELOCs uh, okay. on investment properties. 
So I found a credit union that would do that. And what I did was I took all my California properties, I probably had five or so at the time that had gone up a lot in value. Yep. I refied them from 30 year into 15 year notes. Ah. But the interest rate drop was pretty significant. I mean, some of them were around 6% and I dropped them into like the sub fours or, or right around 4%. So even though I went from 30 to 15% or 30 year to 15 year, the percent dropped as well. So the payment only went up a little bit. Yep. And I, then I pulled a little bit of capital out on top of what I, what I had already, um, where the balance was. So my, I, my cash flow was, was hurt by a couple hundred bucks, but they had, the rent was going up in California, like more than a hundred bucks every single month. Right. So yeah. the cash flow, just the appreciation I had seen from the cash flow perspective, more than covered whatever that refi was. So it didn't really affect me a whole lot. Now I got a chunk of change from the refis in addition to these HELOCs that I put on it that I can go use to start investing somewhere else. But I knew I didn't want to just buy a bunch of houses with that money and then be stuck. That was when I was like, okay, we're going to try it this way. I'm going to target houses that need to be fixed up in other areas. I'm going to look for what I can do to add value to this house as much as I can. Can I make it bigger? Can I add square footage? Can I add a bathroom? Obviously the rehab just itself will sometimes add value. And I'm going to look for the worst houses and then I'm going to fix them up and I'm going to pull the money out and I'm going to reinvest that money. Very cool. And again, you were looking to do this out of state. So you had to build a team and learn a new market. And you know, how, how do you do that? Because a lot of you know, California investors are going, okay, I'm going to go to the, you know, the South or the Central. But well, what a lot of people do is they use the turnkey method. So they yep. just go to a, someone else who's already like bought the house, fixed it up and they sell it to them. And for some people, that's not a bad deal. But mm -hmm. I didn't like that method because my whole strategy to burr a property mm -hmm. depends on getting it for less than what it's worth. That's oh, the yeah. only way that when you go to refinance it, you get any, any money back out because you're going to, you're only, you, you can't refinance a hundred percent of the value. You can only refinance like 75% of the value. So you yeah. have to be at right around 75 cents on the dollar to get your capital back. So the first book I wrote, Long Distance Real Estate Investing, that book's actually doing really, really well. It was all about how you find another market, how you build a team there, how you make sure that one team member is looking over another team member's work, how you analyze these different areas that you might want to, how you put systems in place so that it's basically a business that's running itself instead of just a job that's dependent on you. So I had, I had bought in California, then I'd bought in Arizona, then I'd bought in Florida, then I'd bought in Arkansas. And at that point, I just realized like I do the same thing every time I go to a new market. It just became like clockwork. I got to get this, then this, then this, then this. And it's kind of like almost a franchise type of a situation. I got really good at it. And the frustrating thing is when you get good at something, you want to do more of it. But when you run out of money, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I realized Burr's is so important because – is there anything more frustrating than getting your like your teeth kicked in in a fight? The other guy's beating you up, and he's finally like misses a punch or he's tired and he can't hit you back, and it's your turn to take advantage. <laughs> yeah. You got nothing in the tank, you know. It'd just be the worst feeling ever, and that's what it was like with this investing. Is you make all these mistakes, and you feel like crap, and you stay up at night, and you're beating yourself up, and you're watching other people do well, and you're not doing well. You go through all this like hardship. And then you finally figure it out. And now you got no capital because you spent it all in the learning process. So that's why I'm always telling even brand new investors, you really should start with the Burr system. If it, if in any way possible for you, because your first couple of deals are not going to go amazing. You're not going to make a ton of money. You're going to make a bunch of mistakes. You're going to get a really, really, really valuable education, but you need to have some capital coming out at the end of it so that you can actually make up for all those mistakes in the future. Yeah. So let's talk about the capital piece. Um, I think you're probably in a situation given the, I don't know, I'll call them ATMs process that you were setting up with the other burrs and other markets. Were you, were you going in with private hard money, your capital for the first six months and then putting bank financing after the fact? Or 
how did the acquisition financing different than the bank financing at the end? Hmm. Yeah, I did it all with my own money. So I would save up my money and I would buy the property or I would use some of the HELOC money. That was still my money that I had taken yep. from other properties and I'd buy the house. And then, so what I realized that the problem that I had is I could do this, but it was really hard to find a lender that would let me refi once I had more than 10 houses. You were constantly looking for portfolio lenders and then they had standards of like, well, we're only going to lend loan to cost, not loan to value, or we'll let yeah. you take 60% loan to value. And I'm like, do you know how hard it is to make this work? <laughs> So what my, most of my time after I learned the real estate investing part was actually spent with the financing part. How do I wow. get out of this thing once I've done everything I'm supposed to do? And uh, what I ended up finding was a credit union in Florida that would give me a line of credit of $500,000 that would let me borrow 75% of the value of the house the minute it was done. As soon as I got an appraisal, they're like, okay, appraised for a hundred grand, you can have 75,000 against that house. And I'd build up that line of credit, pulling the money out until I hit 500. Then I would have bought another $500,000 worth of properties with that money plus whatever money I was saving. Yeah. And I'd go to a commercial lender and I'd say, okay, I need to refinance a million dollars worth of houses into one commercial note, pay off the line of credit, get all my money back and then start that process over. Oh, I like it. So let's walk through this as we're new investors. So if you were someone just starting out doing this, you know, first off reading your two books, probably, would you read your books in order, long distancing first and then Burr second, or would you flip that, assuming you're excited about Burr? If you're a California investor like us, I'd read them long distance then Burr. Yeah, that's what I would uh, if, if you already live in a market where you can buy houses and the long distance stuff isn't as important, I'd start with Burr, but I'd still read long distance. There's people that have read it that have said, hey, I don't, I don't invest long distance, but I do everything you say in your book with the houses that are here. The that systems aspect of it is really powerful. Very, very cool. All right. So, um, so we're new. We're getting educated. We want to take a risk, either California, out of state or local in our backyard. And the first four. The first four purchases relatively easy, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And just you want to talk about why that is? I, you and I know it, but let's put it out there. Yeah. So basically when you're getting a house, most of us are used to, to loans that are ridiculously good, but because we see it all the time, we just get like entitled to where we expect <laughs> the loan should be this good, right? Yeah. When you, I've often like, in the beginning, I would ask myself, why do these banks that are smarter than me give <laughs> someone a 30-year loan at three and a half percent interest? Like that's retarded. I would never give a loan for someone for 30 years at three and a half percent. But these banks with smarter people than me are doing it. And, and I kept asking that question until I realized those loans are insured and sponsored by the government. So exactly. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are these government-sponsored entities that basically encourage banks to give loans to the American public as a perk so that we can encourage home ownership and build wealth for Americans. We always complain about the government, but the reason you're seeing these ridiculously low rates is because the government is, is sponsoring those loans. And if they go bad, the government is basically saying, well, we bought that loan or we insured it, so we'll pay the bank back if you default on it, which gives them the, the courage and the freedom to go out there and give more loans. Well, you can only have up to 10 finance properties and still have Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac insure your loan so that a bank will give it to you. Once you hit four, like the fifth one is the requirements become a lot tougher. You got to put more down. You got to have a better credit score. You got to have a much better debt to income ratio. They start looking at it. That's why the, the numbers five through 10 are tougher, but you can still get them. Yep. The minute you have 10 finance properties, you cannot get that loan anymore. Yep. The typical one that you're used to. Now you're, you're getting into where you need a portfolio loan, which is a bank, a loan that a bank holds on its own portfolio. They're not going to sell it in the secondary market. So they're not going to lock your rate in for 30 years at a super low rate because no. that would be stupid, right? 
they're going to make it adjust every five years or every uh, after the first five years, every year it can adjust according to whatever interest rates do. You get the adjustable rate mortgages, your, um, your interest rate will be higher than what everybody else's are. And a lot of investors just get turned off when they hear that because they, they, they feel it's their right to get that really low rate. That's just what it should be. And the minute they realize they can't, well, then investing stupid. But <laughs> If you're letting me use your money to build my business, then I'm going to do it if it makes sense, you know? Yeah. If it's a 6% interest rate, but I can earn a 15% return, of course I should do that deal. Yeah. You know? So uh, you just have to start asking yourself, how do I make this happen? What do I need to do to make it happen? As opposed to just hearing, oh, you can't get a loan after 10, fine, I won't invest in real estate, I'll just do Bitcoin. Yeah, that's what you just said there frustrates me to no end because I hear it all the time. Oh, I heard getting past 10 rental properties is, is hard or, or impossible. And I go, well, how many do you have? Zero. Yep. I'm like, go get yeah. the first four, sub 4% today. Go get five through 10 at five and a half. And then if you have to get over 10, I've refied loans in the last 90 days uh, at 70% LTV at a six. Mm -hmm. That's because I have a lot more than 10. Yep. And I'm totally okay with that. And I... I I can't fathom why somebody who has zero would be turned off by the fact that you can't get past 10 or 10 is harder when I think four fundamentally changes your life. If you just go get the easy four, I promise you your future is better. Just stop there if you want. Would you agree? <coughs> Yeah, but no one's going to stop because when you get four, you have skills you didn't have at zero that make it so you can get 10. Okay. And when you get 10, you have skills and education and knowledge and resources that you didn't have before that will help you go get 20. Like it doesn't make sense to worry about that problem when you're so far away from it. I agree with you 100%. It just becomes an excuse not to try. If I can't get 10 properties, well, I'm not even going to buy one. You know, it, it, like, would you look at <laughs> at the rock and say, if I can't have biceps like him, then I'm not even going to go to the gym and work out at all. That's too hard to do. No, like any workout's <laughs> going to get better than where you already are. Even one rental property can fundamentally change your life. Brand, my my co-host of the podcast, Brandon Turner, he bought a fourplex for his daughter, Rosie, when she was born. And he set it up so that it would pay itself off after 18 years. And it's still, even after that, it's still cash flowing $1,000 a month. Wow. So in 18 years, it will be completely paid off. It will have appreciated over 18 years of time. He will have made $1,000 in cash for the whole time. He's then going to give it to her and say, you can sell this. You can refinance this. You can do whatever you want. Your college is paid for. Yeah. One deal that he bought, I bet you if he burned it, he left no money in the deal. Probably. Then he gets $1,000 a month of cash flow, right? And she gets her college paid for. That one deal completely transformed her life. If she does that right, it will pay for her college. It will buy her her first car. Then when she gets out of college, she'll keep using the money from that to pay the mortgage of the house that she goes to buy. She may live for free, drive for free, and get a free education off of one house that he bought. Yeah, it's completely ludicrous to say, well, if I can't get 10, then I don't want to buy any. But, you know, again, we both hear it all the time. I mean, we see it on Bigger Pockets posts and, and other things, you know, people going, oh my God, they're, they're worried about the 11th deal when they have zero. When you have perfect examples like the Brandon Turner example for his daughter. I mean, there's some worry about the first or your next deal. Don't, don't try to get the third base when you haven't even got in the batter's box yet. Right? Yeah. Go, go figure that out. So, um, and then just to close out where we were before we go on to the next topic, once you get past 10, you start to get creative. Again, you have new skills, you have new relationships, you understand what people look for. In your case, you go get a 500K equity line uh, from a credit union. You, you use that, you get to a million and then go to a commercial broker, probably 6% interest, what, fixed for five probably? Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And then, and then sometimes they have a balloon payment at five yep. years or 10 years and you're either going to refinance or you're going to refinance something else to pay it off. But by then your portfolio should have gone up in value. You've been saving yep. the cash flow that you've been getting. It's going to, your rents have gone up over five years. So even if interest rates go up, like that's something that I had a, a mentor of mine a long time ago told me when I was worried about, well, what happens if interest rates go up? Cause inflation is going to happen. <laughs> And he's like, David, as an investor, inflation is your friend. It's your friend, exactly. You want that to happen. It's okay if your interest rate goes up a point because your rents over all 10 of those houses are going to go up a lot when inflation happens. And I just yeah. kind of kicked myself for being stupid and not thinking about that. But he's 100% <laughs> right. Like, it's very easy to isolate the one thing that might hurt you and focus on it and miss the 10 ways that you're going to be helped by doing this. Thing. Yeah. Inflation is good when you own assets that are, uh, you know, fixed rate debt, inflation protected with rent and value, right? Because it's yep. nothing but sticks and bricks and components, right? So uh, real estate is, is really a, a great way to be protected from, from inflation. So, uh, yeah, I'll give you a side note. I, I bought a fourplex in Manteca in 2013. And when okay. I bought it, rents were $700 a month for each unit. I bumped them up to 800. I slowly fixed them up a little bit. I just checked in with the guy who manages my portfolio now. And those things are now renting at 1400 a month, right? Over, <laughs> over six years, the rent literally doubled from what I bought it at. You know, wow. it, It's easy to look at that and say, wow, David Green is so smart. He's such a good <laughs> investor. I didn't even know they were at 1400. Okay. I'm I'm not that smart. I'm doing other things and I just set it and forget it. That is 100% inflation yeah. that's making me look smart. I just, inflation's this wave and I just put a, like a buoy out there and it's taking it along regardless of what I'm doing. So that's one of the things that I'm, why I encourage people to invest in real estate because you can do a lot of stuff wrong, but if you wait long enough, oh, yeah. inflation's going to make you look really smart. Yeah, time. That's the big thing, right? I've been doing this for 15 years, uh, you know, from one house to to financial freedom and it's, it's, it's the time that got us there, right? Those little drips of cash flow, like your example, yep. Antica, right? It was cash flow. And I don't know, pick a number $800 when it was $700 rent. Now mm -hmm. it's 14. Even if you did, even if you took cash out, it's, it's more cash flow and it just way more. Yeah. yeah. It just builds over time, the little trickles into a stream. And then it's a, it's a raging river that gives you freedom. So uh, I, I applaud that. The other topic you brought up that I want made sure we wanted to go back to was timing the market. Again, this is something I hear a lot and a lot lately. Don't you think the market's going to get soft? Don't you think it's going to turn around? Well, I'm going to wait for the crash. Um, yeah. I invested before the last crash, during the last crash. So I, I know this time it's not set up the same way, but let, let's talk about timing the market and sitting on the sidelines <laughs> and, and, and waiting. Yeah, there's so many things we could go into about <laughs> this. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is people that say that I want to, the, the crash is coming. I don't want to buy before the crash. You're, it's a very quick way to let someone else know that you're not very financially savvy and you're kind of a newbie because most of them are basing that thought off of, well, doesn't the market crash every seven years, yeah. right? Or every 10 years, like it's due. Like there's this, 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 like Godzilla is going to come out of the ocean every hundred years and it's been like <laughs> Like, I don't want to be in Tokyo when that happens. So let's not go there. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't actually think that it works that way where there's these unseen forces that are forcing the economy to crash. I think that we do stupid things every seven to 10 years. Cause that's about how long it took to forget the last stupid thing that we did, you know, but the last one was so horrifically bad. And we took such severe measures to try to keep the economy from going bad with quantitative easing and everything else that it wouldn't surprise me that we get a longer than usual run up in prices. 
you know? So when people say to me, well, how do you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if the market crashes? I always come back to them and say, well, what makes you think it's going to? What signs are you seeing? Because in 2015, there were signs that you could see, or sorry, 2005 or six, mm -hmm. that we were in a, in a bad place. When teachers yeah. are buying million dollar homes, like the lending was really, really rough. Mm -hmm. You can see those things and be like, okay, there could be a, a market crash coming. Maybe I want to sell my stuff and move it somewhere safer or whatever the case may be. But there's not really any of those signs that I can see right now. And I'm a real estate agent in this area. So I'm looking at this stuff all the time. And while yes, home prices have increased, so have wages. And I've never, ever heard a person complain, man, this is ridiculous. My boss keeps giving me a raise every year. This is unsustainable. We can't keep going at this rate. Like he needs to pay me less money, right? Everybody loves it when they get that raise but then they get pissed that the home prices are going up or the cost of food is going up. It's all is, in, is related to inflation, right? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of money floating around after quantitative easing. It has to find somewhere to go. So the first thing I would say about people worried about a market crash is it's fine to be worried about it. Give me something objective that you're seeing that you really believe is going to cause the crash. The yeah. next thing that I would say about like trying to time the market is that in 2010 or 11 or 12, what would have been the best time to buy a house out here in California, nobody was wanting to buy houses. Exactly. I mean, do you remember that, Michael? Like, oh, that's, yeah. what I, that's what I got started. And all that people told me is this is really a bad idea. You should be really careful. Owning real estate's a bad idea. It's going down in value. We're heading into a recession. Nobody was excited about buying rental property. So if you're scared about a market crash coming after seeing, you know, what has it been nine years of pure, just like up, 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 and everyone's excited about it. And the tech world's getting into real estate and money's flowing into this. And it's like a trendy, cool thing. HGTV is really popular. If you're scared now, you don't know how you're going to feel when everyone is like, the sky is falling. Exactly. Run away. You're not going to buy houses. Like, just, you're not going to do it. You're, yeah. If you're already too scared, that's not going to happen. Um, financing is also a lot tougher to get when that does happen. Money oh. is cheap right now you can borrow money easily for not that much watch what happens when there's opportunity everywhere and smart people are taking advantage of it they're not going to leave their money hanging for you yeah that's another thing to think about with the market crashing and the last thing that i would say is that it like we started off this conversation it doesn't matter what your house is worth unless you're selling it that's the only time it matters it matters if it makes you money every month and you can ride out any storm as long as that's the case I've, I'm only 36 years old, so I don't, I don't claim to be some real estate genius guru who's been around for 70, 80 years and seen all the ups and downs. But I ask every single older person that invests in real estate when I come across them, have you ever seen rents go down? And hmm. none of them say yes. It just, it just hardly ever happens that rents actually decrease. They may increase slower, but mm -hmm. they don't go down. And, and during 2010, 11, 12, we saw that where people lost their homes and they needed somewhere to live. And so rents went up because now landlords had like, they were holding all the cards. And then uh, as values went up after that, rents kept going up because there was, everybody was buying houses again. There wasn't a lot of rental properties. You know, yeah. the only case where rents will go down is if you buy into an area that has more supply than demand. Yeah. So if, if businesses leave an area and jobs leave and people leave, if there's not a lot of people to rent houses, your rents could go down. Or if a ton of people go in there and start building rental property, like that would be one of the red flags I'd look for. Yeah. Someone's like, we're going to build a bunch of single family houses and we're going to rent them out. I probably wouldn't want to be in that area. I'd be like, let's sell my stuff. Let's get out of here. There, there's a chance that we could have too much supply for the demand. But absent that, rents don't go down. So you don't really have to worry a whole lot about what if the value of your house drops because if you're not going to sell it, it doesn't matter. Oh, I, I agree with everything you just said there. But I'll give you a couple of tidbits because I have been doing this for a long time, pre-crash, during, and after. The only time I ever saw rents get soft 
and I do say soft, not down, meaning we had a move-in special, right? Half off rent, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. was right at the peak of like 07 because even my rough, you know, my, my tenants who couldn't afford it were getting loans. So people yeah. who should have been renters were getting qualified deals houses, yeah. Yeah, that they couldn't afford that ultimately they lost. In my yeah. entire career, that was the only time rents even got soft. Because why be a tenant if you can buy a house? And if, if people are giving you money that shouldn't be, you're going to take it. And that yeah. was kind of what caused the whole. But even then, it, they, there were signs that that wasn't normal. And oh, there yeah. was, uh, right? It wasn't like it just hits you out of nowhere and you had no way to know. You knew, why the heck is it so hard to rent out a house? Well, it's because nobody wants to be a tenant. They're being told, be a homeowner. It's the American dream. Free money. We'll give it to you. Go buy that yeah. house for a million dollars. There were people buying 300K homes that had to bring less to the closing table to buy a house than my first month rent and deposit. Isn't that amazing? That's yeah. a red flag. <laughs> that was, yeah. That's a red flag. So uh, the other thing you said there that I want to echo is 2000 and the crash, whatever you want to call that period. It was a financing bubble that popped. Yeah. Real estate happened to be the asset that was wrapped mm -hmm. up in the financing. So it was the asset that was affected, but it was 100% a lending, you know, CDOs and all these other things laddered up. It's a very good observation. If car companies did the same thing, if oh. they just started giving out car loans to anybody, then car prices would have started to go up. Absolutely. Assuming that, that, that the amount of cars that could be manufactured was fixed was like fixed. it was with homes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was it. Uh, and then the other thing is your point about scared investors. That's the thing that they don't get is I saw I was buying. So we stopped buying houses because they just didn't make financial sense in like 07. And we started buying small multis. Then when the crash happened, call it 9, 10, 11, we started picking up houses for land value because buyers disappeared. And your point about lending, we couldn't borrow because we walked into a bank with a hundred properties and they're like, sorry, we can't lend to you, right? You're the devil. Yeah. You're, you're the reason all this is happening. I'm like, no, I'm not. You're the reason all this is happening. Yeah. And you know, we had to go find ways to get stuff. We, we turned to private and hard money and you know, just kept, kept going. So uh, yeah, if you're worried about a crash now, you're going to be, you're going to be scared money if it, if it ever happens. So that's exactly right. And I, I really think that we're going to look back at this time period, uh, 2019, 2020, 30 years from now, and we're going to be sitting there talking about, can you believe that I used to be able to borrow hard money at 9%? You know, can you believe it yeah. was that we can, because, because that's not going to be the case in, in any other economy where there's not this much cash floating around. Money is so much more expensive and oh, so yeah. much. Yeah. And right now, I mean, hard money lenders are like, you got a pulse. All right. <laughs> Let's go. Loan. Yeah. We got to deploy this capital somehow. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I just want to come back to because, you know, I have a lot of single family homes. I've been a, a landlord for a long time. I do have a opinion that there is one part of our landlord market that is getting inflated and could be in trouble sooner rather than later. And that's multifamily or apartments. I see. Yeah, I agree with you. I see. Because like we said earlier, they're building them everywhere, right? That and and money or success is chasing that asset class. And what people aren't seeing is that asset class has so much less inventory that's available for sale. I don't know what it is. One tenth, one fifth of, of the, the single family home market. And um, I mean, I own some and I've sold some apartments recently because people are giving me 30% more than I think they're worth. So, well, this is, this is, yeah, I, it's a good move. I think this is where the, the casual investor, the newer investor that all they do is watch home prices go up or down. They don't really understand the forces that drive that can get yeah. lost. 
this is my opinion, okay? So don't go and just assume yeah. that if David Green says it, it's absolutely true. This is how I view this, my perspective. During 2010, we the country almost fell into financial collapse because the lending markets like had no more money to give. The financial markets were completely grinding to a halt. Mm -hmm. We were looking at a recession. In order to avoid that, the government started pushing money into the economy through quantitative easing, but they didn't actually print dollar bills. What they did was they bought bad debt from these financial institutions that was the people were never going to pay it back. The government put it on the government's books, meaning the taxpayers now own that debt that will never be paid back. And they gave money to the financial market for that debt saying, go put this into the economy, put it back into circulation. It kept us from falling into a recession. But what it did, in my opinion, was it created a massive tsunami of money. That is now like just going crazy out there. If you look at the amount of money that was in, in circulation before quantitative easing and afterwards, I mean, it's like if you look at a graph, it's just kind of slowly going up since we got rid of the gold standard. And then yeah. you get like where the Obama administration was and just goes just right up, right? Insane how much money is in circulation. So smart people end up with their hands on this money. All the time, right? Bankers, hedge funds, stuff like that. You've got a bunch of money that you have to go invest in something now. One of the easiest places to stick it is a really big apartment complex. Yeah. You have one property manager that manages that thing. Financing was super easy to get. You can put $10 million down and borrow $40 million from someone else who has a ton of money that they have to lend very, very easily. At the same time, the economy is doing really good. So you all have almost no vacancy. Rents are going up all the time. It has been like the golden era for buying multifamily yes. apartments because this money is so dang cheap. My concern would be that's what's driving cap rates down and therefore prices up. When that changes, let's say the government comes in and says, we're raising the, the Fed the, um, prime rate to 8% instead of the one or two where it's been. All those people that are giving money to the smart people, the hedge funds, the bankers, everyone else, they're going to pull it all back and say, I don't want to have it invested in an apartment. I want to stick it in a CD. Yeah. Because I can make 9% or 8% on a CD instead. And all those apartment complexes now that had the same like kind of a bubble that we talked about, it wasn't a financing bubble, but it was a capital bubble. Yep. Their values are all going to come right back down. And people aren't going to want to be owning those properties anymore. So you're going to have to actually factor in vacancy and mm -hmm. rents maybe not flying up all the time. And now they've built a whole bunch of them like what you were seeing. It's all because that money needs somewhere to rest. So I wouldn't say don't invest in apartment complexes, but I would say be a lot more careful about where you're buying and what you're buying and how many other people are doing the same thing around you. If you see just tons of construction going on and it doesn't look like that city can support it with the, you know, the job situation there the employment right. situation that wouldn't be a good place to stick your money yeah yeah this is very cool so I, i'm curious as you sit here today what what is david green's plan for the future you're just going to keep chugging along you keep adding more and more properties what does david green look like in the future <clears throat> Well, once you get to a certain level of single family homes, it almost becomes like more trouble than it's worth, right? The, the, it, getting a lot of single family houses helped me build up a lot of net worth and equity and it gave me a lot of opportunity. But to continue going in that direction, it gets very hard to manage all of those yeah. different properties constantly, right? So just that, like the bookkeeping headache and the logistical problems of having 30, 40, 50 different homes with property managers that are emailing and saying this happened yeah. and that happened. It starts to pull me away from other opportunities to, to kind of deal with like little paper cuts all the time. Yeah, my I'm focusing right now on becoming the biggest real estate team in the Bay Area. I want people who are looking to buy a house out here or sell their home to have an agent who understands 
the number side of real estate, how to actually make money doing this and how to save money doing this and how the contract works so they don't get burned. So I've been putting a lot of energy into kind of building up that business. I'm going to start doing loans in a couple months here. I'm getting my broker's license. I'll open a mortgage company so that we can give people really good financing, really cheap because I don't have to charge as much as another lender if I'm also getting the commission on the property. And then getting into maybe like the bigger apartment complexes, but being very careful about which areas that I'm buying them in. So that's kind of like the three things that I'm working on right now, the agent thing, the loan thing, and then apartment complexes. And then I'll, I'll always snag up single family homes like as they become available. <clears throat> but I'm not purposely out there trying to get as many as I can. It's more yeah. of a, I've already got the system built. They yeah. kind of just show up coming my way. Oh, that one looks cool. All right, drop it down the conveyor belt and I'm going to end up with a, a rehab property in a couple months. And yeah, really nice. Very cool. So as you sit here today, how many markets are you in? I'm in four markets with single family homes, okay. three additional markets with uh, apartment complexes that me and other investors bought in. Okay. And then another market where I have a couple properties where I own the mortgage note. So the, I don't own the property, I own the note and the person who owns it pays me like Got I'm it. the bank. Got it. Okay. And then, wow. So you have, I'm guessing you have a team, right? It's not, all these emails aren't going to David Green. I'm guessing you have a yeah. I have a guy, one of the agents who's on my team who also manages my portfolio. I have it all set up to go into one email and everything. Like really one of the trickier parts that no one tells you about is when you've got this many different like properties, how to get all the property managers to put it in the same bank account and get all the lenders exactly. to pull from the same bank account. I have this like patchwork of they'll only take it from this bank and they'll only put it into that bank. So this bank has to transfer the money There's over that, that one. Yeah. And then sometimes the two banks don't communicate well. And so they don't accept the transfer. And you oh. get that, like, yeah, that, that thing, which nobody ever talks about because very few people end up with this many single family houses is honestly what will make me end up just like 1030 winning the whole thing <laughs> into the part. Yeah. So I can just have the peace of mind. It's, it's really funny. It's a stupid problem to have, but that's a big problem in my life right now. <laughs> oh, the problems of being in multiple markets. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as we kind of wrap this up together, are there any big lessons learned or gotchas that you're like, wow, if I had to start over or do something different, I would, <clears throat> I would do it different. Okay. So the biggest one is I got started. I told you in 2009, 10, everyone was telling me you shouldn't do this. Okay. I listened to them and uh -huh. I bought one house a year. Had I just bought three houses a year, which is I had the bandwidth to do it. I was a single guy I was working tons of overtime. I had zero bills. I was living at home. There was no objective reason I should not have bought more than one house a year other than my fear. At the bottom, my net worth yeah. at the bottom, it would be $2 million more than what yeah. my net worth is right now, just from that one change. So I often now, instead of looking in the moment, like, oh, should I buy the house? Should I not buy the house? I'm really scared. What if the market crashes? What if this happens? What if that happens? I say, <clears throat> 30 years from now, looking back, yeah, am I going to wish that I had pulled the trigger on this or am I going to regret that I did it? And there's very few circumstances where I'm like, uh, I shouldn't buy the house. 30 years of inflation will make any decision yeah. really, really. <laughs> Just ask yourself what 30 years ago when your parents bought their first house, what they paid for it. Yeah. Think in decades, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. That's one of the best pieces of advice I can give. And I wish I had done that earlier. Yeah, I totally agree. I, you have to think in decades. You can't think in months and not even years, right? Let, let inflation and time be your friend, right? Yep. And, so, and let your tenant pay down your debt for you. Yeah. They're going to pay off 70% of, my... of it, right? Yep. You know, so. So one of my favorite sayings is if you want to be a millionaire, take out a million dollars in healthy debt and let your tenant pay it off for you. Oh, there you go. 
Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Well, David, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, why don't you plug the book again, how people can follow you, your Bigger Pockets podcast, whatever you want. How can they get a hold of you? There you go. This is the book by Rehab, Rent, Refinance, Repeat, The Burr Rental Property Investment Strategy Made Simple. The best way to get a hold of me is to follow me on Instagram. I'm David Green 24 I don't have the beard on my Instagram page, so <laughs> it's still me, even though I look like a, a cue ball with a smile, basically. <laughs> My bald head and my bald face. Um, you can also check us out at the Bigger Pockets podcast or catch me at biggerpockets.com. I have a profile over there. You can, you can message me. And then if you have any questions about um, buying or selling a house in the Bay Area, please reach out. Let me know. We'd love to get somebody in touch with you and talk with how we can help you with that. All right, David. Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it, man. Yep. Take care.